truth, honor, loyalty, character. Hey, and welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is your host, Maddie Arnold, and I'm very excited today to be sitting down talking to Dan Kanopka. Dan is a 1993 graduate of York High School, and he's also a musician. He is the drummer in the incredibly awesome and successful band OK Go. OK Go has amassed over half a billion views on YouTube with their incredibly creative and unique uh, music videos. And they've done collaborations with band, with brands and other uh, artists throughout the time. And really, they've created some incredible stuff. The link of their YouTube channel will be down below, and you should check them out. So, good morning dan kanapka how are you i'm doing very well thanks for having me on this is really cool i'm glad you reached out and uh thank you for the kind words yeah so you're one of the first non-athlete uh guests we've had on here but you are a york alum so you are a duke and you um are a musician and coach newton always talked about the power of musicians and he used to love recruiting guys right off the band to join the cross-country team Tell us what you know about Newton and how you think that your experience as a musician might be reflective of uh, a better understanding of him than we might have already. Well, I mean, when we started at York, I think there was probably some sort of like pep rally or something. And and there was I don't know if it was super direct, but I think I remember there was a, a moment where we were sitting on the bleachers and it was sort of proposed to all mostly the boys, I guess, I guess I felt very much a target of like, this is an opportunity for you guys to, to, to get involved with like one of the most winningest cross country scenes, like in the world, like this is the best team with the best record and the best coach. Here he is, Joe Newton. You know, I was kind of, I just thought he was like a really cool, fiery little guy. And, and it seemed like, anybody that got into his solar system, you know, like became really good at running and really good at being a team player. And it was really compelling at the time. I was telling you earlier, I played some B B string football stuff at York. And it was to basically just to have fun. But like I had at that point, I think I was really starting to think more about just being a musician and being a producer. Like I really wanted to be involved with making music. That was like the main thing. And so I didn't react to it like, oh, let me go talk to Joe or talk to these guys. But I was friendly with a lot of people that were in track and it was cross country, right? That's like the main thing. I was friendly with them and I could see how much it was benefiting everybody, but I didn't want to do it. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to run that long. (laughs) And, uh, but I always appreciate it. I always thought it was really kind of awesome. And I, and I've definitely felt like I never knew exactly how great that team was or how fantastic their legacy was until later. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these guys don't ever lose they're like the best of the best and um and then i think um i recognized that didn't joe uh, wasn't he an olympic coach Mm -hmm. yeah yeah he was the first uh high school coach to be invited on olympic staff yeah and i was just like oh my gosh this guy's he's a legendary guy um and so I guess I I don't know if it was sophomore or junior year I had gotten assigned to his gym class in the normal school day and he was always really really kind to me he would 
say like, hey, you know, in the beginning, he'd be like, hey, well, how, how about you? Uh, how would you come try this with us? I'm like, no, 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 no. And he'd be like, well, what are you up to? And I, and I would say, I'm like, well, I'm a drummer. And I think at that point, it was kind of known that I was doing that. And I was doing a level that was like, you know, I was in bands and playing with upperclassmen and stuff. And he's, I, I just got a sense that he, he had accepted it. He would call me Naps. He'd be like, Naps, you going to run with us? Or are you going to, are you going to, are you going to play your drums? And he would like just have like funny things to say about drumming. I think he loved big band jazz. I think he appreciated this like Buddy Rich, Johnny Carson level of showmanship. And I think that really spoke to him. And so like even the way he would mind playing drums, it looked like a Buddy Rich kind of guy, you know, like. And then after a certain point that year, he even just allowed me just not to come to gym. He'd just be like, no, you go, go do whatever you're going to do. You go to the art department, you go to band or whatever. He would just say, you don't have to do gym anymore. And then a couple of times I would, you know, say hi. And then he would give me his keys to his car or he'd say, I want you to go pick up my dry cleaning. And so I'd hop in my car and go to the Elmer's cleaners or wherever his stuff was. I'd grab that and he'd have me get him White Castle hamburgers. And it was basically like something to do for the hour. And I'd come back. And it was like, because it was Joe, like I didn't need a hall pass. I didn't need an excuse. They were just like, I'm going to run an errand for Joe and for, for the coach and 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 then just go and then come back. And, you know, he'd be, you know, funny and appreciative. But it was just like, I just felt like kind of a special guy. Like, I'm sure there was a lot of people who did those errands for him, but I got to do those a couple of times. And that was, that left a, a very nice impression. I, yeah. How like, did I, you get? How did you get chosen? I have no a- idea. <laughs> I don't know. I, I maybe it was just one of those things where I, I maybe I, cause I was, I was never the best student. Like my grades weren't stellar or anything, but I was very, very like respectful. And like a guy like him, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to be sassy or disinterested. Like I'm going to pay decent respect. Maybe that was a, a thing that he liked, you know, uh, I wasn't going to do the running. But at least when I was around him, I, you know, I paid attention, I paid respect. And so I don't know, I, he, you know, he, he'd let me go do these errands. And, you know, at that age, at, you know, 16, you're, you're like psyched. You're like, that's great. Like, I'm glad to go uh, run and pick up White Castles for him. <laughs> so did, did you sneak yourself a couple onion rings then too? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would, I would get myself totally stacked for lunch and, um, I mean, he must have given me like 20 bucks or something. I don't know what, I don't know how the transactions work. I know I didn't pay to get his cleaning. It was either paid for in advance or, you know, he get like, gave me some money, some cash. Yeah. I would go do it and come right back rather than like go smoke bongs. Like he would always suggest. He would often say like, if you did something in gym class or that was good, or like you gave it an effort, he'd say, he'd be like, good job, Naps, three bongs for you. And I think what he was referring to is that he thought that's what we all did after school was like smoke bongs. <laughs> or I don't know, I don't know if, if a bong was like a like the song, the sound of a crash symbol or something like. But three bongs, two bongs for you, two bongs for you. I used to tell the guys in OK Go about Joe Newton and say if they did something well, I'd be like two bongs for you, Tim, three bongs for you, Damien. So that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> it all started with Joe Newton. <laughs> it did. 
I told Tim that I was doing this interview about Joe Newton. He was like, Oh my gosh, that's so funny. And he's like, well, you know, tell, you know, talk about how you used to get, you were divvied out, you know, verbal uh, permission, bong permission from Joe Newton. Bong credits. Yeah. He, I always, cause I didn't run for him either. I was always just uh, one of the members of his PE class. And that itself, it was like a performance art. It was like every class, he had shtick. And, and when you observe him around the, the team, he had certain boundaries, right? You know, the bong jokes were a little more serious and severe. But then when you would be into the mainstream, like York is a, a big public school. And, you know, we got kids in the auto shop. We got kids, you know, learning, you know, all these different levels of the economics of society. And, you know, you got your burnouts and your stoners and your, and, and he had like a nickname for all of them. And he had a shtick with all of them, too. So, like, sounds like the shtick he had with you was bongs and, and white castle sliders. Yeah, I remember that. There was very distinct little pockets of clicks and things. And I felt pretty, pretty comfortable in a lot of them. You know, like a lot of people, oh, high school sucked. It was hard. I didn't I wasn't comfortable or, or it never fit in. I f it was a great time for me. Like. I had lots of friends in different crews. Uh, by the time I was a junior and senior, I spent most of my time in the in the art department, though. That was like where I was. I wouldn't even bother going to the gym room at all. It was just not, not something I did. Uh, so you spent a lot of time in the art department. What kind of uh, media were you exploring? Uh, by, I think it was sophomore year, I had gotten involved with this class called Art Staff. And we did basically anything artistic around the school that the school needed like murals or like yearbook design and things like that that was kind of the center of my universe for high school like i would be doing all the other classes but like spent a lot of time in there uh you know if i had study hall i would go to the art department and so art staff was the main hub of everything so it was required us to try to be good at as many different things that service the school you know like the plays that we had we were the set designers um if there was anything that was going to happen you know if there was any sort of mural or wall painting or something it was all up to us to do that so it was kind of like mixed bag of stuff but i guess my strongest part was i was a pretty decent cartoonist you know i think i put some cartoons in the the art show a couple years and you know we would just do whatever would make everybody laugh. And then Kevin Cotelier and I became really tight friends and he really was looking to be a filmmaker. So we would work together on his pet projects, you know, like his little stories or, or whatever. And there was no internet and it wasn't like a whole lot of other things do, you know, TV was fine, but it wasn't like, I don't know if I had cable until later in life, but it was just like, we would just get together and, and make those types of, you know, small movies or, music videos and things like that. And uh, and then Kevin, he went off to study at NYU. And so it was that kind of like, we did whatever we could to help the school. And then and then I got really uh, engaged with Kevin with trying to make films with him. He would just tell me what to do and I would try to do it. And then I would I would music supervise those those videos. And that was, it was a lot of fun. I have a fond memory of like art the art show i think it was maybe my freshman or sophomore year and you you and kevin i won a bunch of awards for like photography and you guys won for i, I don't know what cat they made a category for you because nobody had heard of filmmaking yet and like they were like wait these guys actually made a movie and it's on a videotape and it has a story and 
I still I want to see it again because I just remember this amazing movie about these two dudes that were like addicted to this sugar drink or drug like substance, something that was addictive and it came in a two liter bottle and it like was full of metaphor and full of, you know, comic relief. And I just remember really loving it. You want to tell us? Uh, I, and I, all I remember is like I was afterwards. I can remember it that night being like, how did you guys learn how to do that? And you were like, oh, we went to uh, public access. I'm like, you can take classes? Yeah, it's free. And they let you use the equipment. Okay. And when are you guys making another movie? And like, I really wanted to like be an actor in the next uh, Cotillier Kanopka joint. I remember it. Like the, they, you know, it was playing on one of those roller cart TV tube VHS tape things and uh it was just like on a loop or I don't know how you guys did it but you know anytime there was a video opportunity in high school I was like jumping on it and it was so antiquated like the analog nature I talk about how old the technology was from the film and we filmed in 2005 and like compared to 1993 it was just night and day and those those last those 10 year leaps are, are huge what the technology can do so what was your involvement with like that stuff? Was that part of art art staff or was that just like an independent project? Totally independent. You know, boredom brings out all sorts of creativity and, you know, we didn't have much else to do. I had a I had a car. So that was like a big feature in the movie. It was called Zesty, the Forbidden Drink. I don't remember how long it was. I think it was like maybe 20 minutes long. I would actually play his mother. So I'm in a dress and with earrings and a wig and, and, or at least I think I probably had a pretty decent mullet at the time. So I like to maybe put some barrettes in it. You know, he wrote out this story and I didn't care. I was like, what could be a story about whatever, just as long as we can do something that feels organized. And it was fun. It was somewhere like North Elmhurst. There was a, you know, cable access studio and, uh, we brought in our tapes and we got in there and like on off hours and edited this thing together as best we could or the best Kevin could. And again, it was just we were just trying to make something cool, make each other laugh, have it make sense and, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, glean off as many like filmmaking techniques that we could understand from our perspective and, and just like try to make something that looks kind of real. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast. I haven't seen it in years. And I know Kevin has it. I can get it. Um, I think the last time I talked to him about it, he said it, he's like, it's so cringy. It's so awful. But I don't really care. I want to see it again. I And now that I'm a dad with kids that are going just about to go into junior high school, it would be really funny and really fun to see what they think. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a disaster. They're going to be totally horrified and embarrassed by it but at the same time i'll you know i'll be able to say like hey well look look what i did with my summer you know of uh junior high of high school <laughs> look what not having video games will do exactly. to your productivity exactly exactly well i really remember i hope i hope it does i hope it gets released online and i can link to it down below because it was one of the highlights. Of, it was just so cool to see. Because we didn't grow up in a filmmaking mecca. And like anytime anything was cinematic in Chicago, let alone Elmhurst. Elmhurst, maybe there was a made-for-TV movie once in a while that was shot like in a law office downtown or something. But but we also had like – I was we were talking about that before we started recording. That Chicago had this very – it felt like it was the center of so many universes. And for, so it was definitely the center of the sporting universe. We had the 85 Bears. We had Jordan. 
we it wasn't even a matter of like is are the bulls gonna win it was like is it gonna be a three-peat a four-peat a five-peat a six-peat we didn't have like there was it was just we were just winners every sport was like we all win not the baseball so much when we were growing up but football the cubs that was whether oh, they it, won or lost it was just great to be there it was just such good energy and 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 then harry carry across uh, harry carry across the street was the metro okay so like mm. i would get i would get every single nutrient that i wanted you know like losing cubs still fun the metro see you know see some touring act it would it felt pro it felt big i know metro is not a huge place i've played there are a bunch of times it's tiny uh, in a lot of ways um but boy you'd get you get radiohead they'd play at the metro or the, the riviera like that chicago has so much of that stuff and at that time it really was kind of crazy blessing like we were spoiled we had i mean michael jordan cheese <laughs> just amazing like ditka Ditka, yeah, and yeah, Soldier Field. Oh man, it. And you know about the movie thing. Like, I would say, you know, six months ago, I tried showing my kids. I have a, I have two ten-year-olds and an eight-year-old, and and maybe two years ago, I tried to show them Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Totally did not respond to it. Showed it to them, maybe a couple months ago, and it was on repeat in the house for like three weeks like they would watch it after school and 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 to me i was just like there's my hometown <laughs> like i was like i always wanted to be ferris bueller like like and that was that's so deeply imprinted chicago it just feels good yeah like we went to high school with a girl whose uncle owned the ferrari and like that felt like a celebrity sighting but yeah, the the iconic nature of the the skyline, which from Elmhurst you can stand at certain streets and you can see all the way down to the city. Like, and Chicago is a very flat land. Like we didn't really know hills or mountains growing up, but like the sky the skyline was our own our our communal mountain land, uh, skyline of like a landscape that we all had and shared. And like just that shot in Ferris Bueller where the Ferrari's jumping over the hill and you see the skyline. It's just like. We had all like all the John Hughes movies were were Chicago movies like Home Alone was in Oak Park and uh, The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller. Like these movies were were so everything's felt so specific to us. Yeah. And, you know, of course, there's a whole other world out there, but the sporting experience and, and I think York, York cross country was sort of another layer of that. It was like we had the pro teams and we had the local teams and it was just everyone was very enthusiastic about sports yeah and it was like pretty cool so have you ever reflected back on your relation with joe newton and and now that you're a father and any like lessons that you can apply to that part of your life i do find myself kind of at least with my son i have a much larger threshold of saying yes like in terms of parenting I'm much more of like a, a yes perspective rather than no, or like I will say yes to almost everything first and let him make good decisions about what he's experiencing. I know some parents probably kill me for this or a psychologist, but it's worked out really well for me. He's a really good student. 
And I've always spoken to him as if he was an adult in a lot of ways, you know, within what he could understand. But I just, I treated him with that type of respect. And I felt like in a lot of ways, that's kind of the way Job may have treated me. He was just like, yeah, yes. Like, go do that. Yes, please do that. Like, it's just, it was, a, it was the attitude was always in the affirmative. And, um, and I felt like because he trusted me, I was going to do right. And that's why Cohen does right. Like he knows, he knows that he doesn't, he doesn't have anxiety. You know, he's not, he's not anxious about getting the things he wants to get. And so he's, he's respectful to me and to his stepmother and obviously to his mom. Maybe that's part a little bit of Joe towards me, but I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like he gave you incredible autonomy. Like I think you're one of the first people that weren't managers on the team or runners on the team who were given that kind of privilege. No teacher would do that today. Give somebody their car and have them go get their laundry and get them some white castles especially an athlete or as a coach to get that type of health food is just mental health. So you, yeah. So he gave you a lot of autonomy and, and what felt like it was kind of a cool thing. And people were like, Ooh, you know, Kanopka's going to go get some bong rips. And he's saying that in one side of his mouth, but then saying, here's my car keys in the other. And that creates like a real sense of, of, of trust building in the young man which I think he always had like an instinct for those things that it's not taught, it's not written down, but he was able to target every single person. So you were an artist and a musician and he knew, he saw something in you. He knew that you had a level of kindness and trustworthiness, but also you were sort of on the, the, the cool kid side and like with hanging out with the art kids or the burnouts or the, you know, whatever stereotype he wanted to bundle you into, he, he could find it, but Inside of that, even, he knew you you still had a lot of worth. He found ways to lift you up by just having someone go get his laundry. So it's like that that autonomy along with that responsibility teaches somebody. It teaches a young man a lot. I totally agree. I think that's right. There's a, a unique difference between Beverly's kids and Cohen. As Cohen was a, he was an only child up until, you know, four years ago. And... um he just he never really had to compete for anything in a lot of ways. So it just his general sort of attitude, you know, he was given autonomy. And then his attitude like he just had a lower, lower sense of anxiety about, you know, being the one to tell the story, being the one, the first one to get uh, the bowl of cereal or whatever. You know, like he just he's just much more relaxed. COVID, you know, he got anxiety came up because. You know, he was really concerned. He didn't want to get sick. And um, his mother had a had a baby uh, right at the beginning of COVID. So he became really stressed out about where everybody was going. If every if everybody was masked, you know, like that's sort of so we had we had some issues with that. But now that that's settled down, he's returned to a pretty relaxed, confident kid. And yeah, I think the trust that Joe showed to me stuck, you know, like I, I get it. And, you know, it feels right. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm I'm glad I had that experience with him, even though I didn't run even one lap with him. And in what grade is your son in now? Uh, he's in fifth grade. Fifth grade, and he's sort of leaning towards what's is he leaning towards sports or music or does he have a preference of his hobbies yet? Yeah, he's he's definitely um, interested in computer games. Um, 
he uh, spends a lot of time um sort of like i wouldn't say he's coding stuff but he's like he's gotten to the point where he's familiar enough with the game that he'll reach out to the administrators of the game and try to find things to do for the game or um you know like he was an admin on a game called uh, a vr game called gorilla tag and it's a new game it's really kind of funny and you should you should look it up it's just very silly like the, the it's it's vr but it's really low quality kind of graphics but it's a communal community type game where he can play with um kids from all over uh it's it's like we we don't let him do first person shooter stuff you know like none of the call of duty or whatever that where there's like real graphic violence and stuff we kind of keep him out of that um out of that world but he's found this this other game and he really loves doing it and i think uh just generally speaking i think he he really wants to be more like a tech kind of kid coming up he doesn't respond much to the music stuff that i do uh but he does love music uh and you know he's got a pretty healthy diet of youtube content stuff that i you know it's for kids and we watch over it he doesn't he doesn't mess around One of those kids that doesn't like if a song comes out that's explicit he'll change it because he doesn't want to feel you know he doesn't want to be uh embarrassed <laughs> that he heard some swear words or something um but i'm like dude i don't really mind like if they if that's the art they're making and they hear swears like that's fine by me but he's just generally sort of careful and cautious he's always had a a pretty deep sense of risk assessment he does he never like was the kid that would get excited if you saw a jungle gym he'd be like oh cool i might hurt myself i'll chill over here and and not f with that <laughs> so so the video game world for him is is kind of his main interest at the moment that's cool and then um are you seeing okay go fan yeah i think he I think for a long time he didn't really understand it. Like he was just like, "Oh wow, that's that's my dad. He's in a video." But like, I don't think he knew that we had fans or that it was something like he didn't even really qualify it as as like my job. But these days, um, he definitely knows its value. He's he's pulled me aside and said like, "Oh yeah, I saw one of my favorite YouTubers reference the treadmill video." You know, be like, "Oh, that's cool." You know, like right on. Um, but in terms of music, I, I, I don't think it moves the needle for him. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that the stats impress his friends when they hear 500 million views on YouTube, your dad. Yeah. That's more than 500,000, isn't it? Yeah. He, he did not believe that I had a Grammy. Oh, really? He's like, I don't, I don't believe it. I'm like, you, you never seen it. And I'm like, you've seen it. You've seen it. And he's like, no. No, it never happened. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go get I went and got out of storage. And I was like, here, look at it. He was like, this is real. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, dad was in a real band. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah. And so what's that like for him, though? Is he Did he spend a lot of time backstage or was he kind of like extra young when you were in your heaviest touring? Uh, Yeah, he was pretty young. We I did. I did one time bring him out to tour. Um. Um. Uh, his mom flew out to Minneapolis. She had friends there and we played a show in Minneapolis. And then we had a following show at the Metro the next day. So he stayed up late, got to see us play. And then I went to the bus and he got to sleep in the bunk 
as we drove down and we woke up and oh my gosh we're in chicago now and so he experienced that but i think he was only like four years old now that he's a little older uh we've been going through COVID, so there hasn't been any touring at all so um he has been to a couple shows um sort of good timing as a as a parent though he he aged in right at the right time where you could use a little more extra time home yeah oh yeah totally totally um i want to go so we've got your your artistic background in high school and then you picked up some musical stuff and then the videos that you guys made were so artistically inspired as well i just love to hear like the story of that how did okay go get together and how did they become such a creative force of the internet when the band started, a lot of the members in the band were already like art school kind of dudes. Um, uh, Damien was a semiotics major at Brown University. Tim uh, went to DePaul and was a uh, theater major. Andy studied music. I was in music. So and this is pre-internet. So like when when the band wanted to get actual success in Chicago, we would wheat paste posters all over the city. And we would go out, you know, two in the morning and and we paste these uh, posters like everywhere. So bad that the the venues were getting citations because it would say the name of the venue and the, uh, the owners of the venue would would, you know, they'd be pissed, but they'd pay the ticket and, and we play our show and the show would be sold out because we had such a presence. And um, so that just sort of like, let's create our own artwork for the betterment of the band. It has always been a feature in the band. The band um, got signed in 2000 and uh, we went into a very hyper, you know, uh, expensive Los Angeles uh, uh, recording studios and, and mentality. And, you know, they wanted us to look like the Strokes and they wanted us to make a record that fit in with what was on the radio. And the music videos that we made with them in charge were four hundred thousand dollar videos and that wouldn't get played on mtv they were really sexy and the band looked awesome and and the you know it was very stylized in a commercial way and it wasn't really that successful uh we didn't really get national su- success on our first album which was all basically artistically curated by the the label uh, on the second record in 2005, uh, we recorded the album in Malmo, Sweden. We got as far away from L.A. as possible, and uh, we were touring constantly and just started making music videos and content for the band on our own with very little money and very little budget and um that stuff was starting to resonate with our fans and then the big splash for us was when we did the treadmill video for the song here it goes again our lead singer's sister's house she had she's a ballroom dancer and had a a, like a dancing ballroom in the back of her house and so we taped that there for the cost of uh chipotle and you know we bought these treadmills that we were returned when we were done and and we just kind of threw ourselves at this idea that this is going to be, you know, something really fun to watch. It was going to be a, you know, a typical music video, but we weren't going to do any editing. We were just going to pull off this stunt. And, um, you know, at that time, YouTube was just coming up. 
And so YouTube got the video and I think within 30 days it had been viewed like 12 million times. And the record label did not like it. They thought it wasn't a good look for us. And and um, shortly after, like maybe six months after it had come out, MTV asked us if we would do the routine on the VMAs, which was a big time show back then. And so we agreed, we did it, nobody bit it, we pulled it off. And that was one year after the record had been released. And that was the record sales for the album was almost quadruple it was the very first week. It was like, boom, this is a new thing. We're going to have to do all the touring again, all the, you know, but now in a, you know, in markets that are, you know, like uh, venues that are bigger and it was just like, go back to work. And um, it wasn't long after that, that we sort of realized either we could embrace this kind of, this sort of aesthetic with our artwork or we could like run away from it. You know, it was like, do we, do we, do we make stuff like this and go that route? Or do we, you know, like that was a one-off and we're, we were just forever the video band, you know, the, the treadmill band, but we knew we had, but we had a lot more ideas and, and it ended up being a lot more fun to just kind of make these things based on our, our ideas, our treatments. And that's fine. Let's let's keep making music videos that are like this, you know, videos with dogs, zero gravity, you know, outfit a car with, you know, hydraulic arms and and just make that kind of artsy, funky stuff. I think it was the right decision. And really, like in terms of inspiration, there wasn't really like any big one sheet about it. It was just like, let's work in zero gravity. That was it. That's all we had. It was like can we get somebody to pay for it? Yes, we found somebody, and and then you really have to go up into a, a comet, ro- you know, a, you know, comet rocket or whatever the zero gravity plane to figure out what actually are you going to pull off in that environment. And that's kind of like how our videos are almost always like is like, uh, you know, a huge Rube Goldberg, Goldberg machine. You don't really know what's going to happen until you start making it. And, uh, and then you're in the deep end and then you got to really take notes, really be careful and try to make the best thing you can. Cause you got a, a couple days to pull it off. So make it great. <laughs> so let's, let, let's rewind for a second because let's start with the treadmill. The treadmill was clearly so groundbreaking. Um, but to me, what you guys represented was an incredible work ethic for learning choreography. Yeah. How long did that take and who was the choreographer? Uh, I, th- that video, I think it took eight days from beginning to end. Um, wow. and Trish, uh, Damien's sister was, you know, she's a ballroom dancer and she's also really close friends with us. And, and she had, you know, she was organized enough to know what, which guy could do what and who was going to be strongest to what. And ultimately we just kind of threw ourselves at the treadmills and just observed what a looked really cool. B what nobody would die trying to pull off over and over again. And uh, you know, just compile the best moments and make something that was going to be fun to watch. And was it, was, was it one take? Yeah. 
so two of my favorite, I think, all-time music videos, because I, I get offered to direct music videos a lot, and I really can't stand lip-syncing, and, like, music videos where it's just, like, the artist walking towards the camera, lip-syncing with wind, you know, it's just so corny to me. Yeah. But your video, as well as the Fatboy Slim video uh-huh. that took place, in, in, and he had, like, it was almost the same concept. It was a one take VHS or a video camcorder video. And his was like shot in front of a movie theater in Torrance. And he had like what he called the Torrance dance company or the Torrance, whatever community dance company. And it was Spike Jones. And he was the lead dancer in it. I just think that that is so, so creativity is what's so exciting to watch. And yeah, and I still think you guys just keep heading it out of the park. You keep getting better at the attempt. Like the treadmill was totally creative. And then like the Rube Goldberg thing was like mind blowing. And I met who, one of the guys that was like one of the lead scientists on that. Like I met him at a film festival and we talked for like two hours about that Rube Goldberg machine and how like, and he, what does he like work with NASA? Like all kinds of, yeah. it, these guys were like these massive science people and you guys have been able to attract like and then that ford commercial was a ford commercial chevy chevy commercial yeah um what you essentially built a car that could play instruments that could drive a, a racetrack and play instruments along the way yeah it's it's you know no because you guys have had so much freedom of play too because it's not like you're working for a brand who's going to be like no this has to sell the deodorant you're just like, no, we're just going to crash these cars a couple times. And of all of your, your body of music video work, which has been one of your favorites. Um, I think that it's funny that, um, well, I would say, I would say first, my favorite one to watch still to this day was the one we did in um, the zero gravity plane. It was shot in Russia and it was, paid for by a privately owned airline called S7. It was definitely the most difficult thing to shoot. It was like incredibly hard. We were there for two weeks to basically see what the vibe was like and try just doing stuff in zero gravity. And then we went back for another 30 days and we shot, we did two flights a day for like 28 days my goodness like astronaut training yeah yeah the typically that that cosmonaut training facility does like eight flights a year or some totally ridiculous like they hardly do it at all and um and we were like we want to be here for a month doing it twice a day so uh i think at first a lot of the the people that worked at the facility just thought we were just crazy rich American nutjobs. But when we came back and they had, you know, watched the body of work that we had done prior to that, they got it. And they understood that we were like, we were going to make some art, you know, and those people, even though they didn't know any English ended up being really uh, important to the success of the video, just to, just to have all those props and all that stuff, uh, be taken care of and and work correctly during the the shot you know for for this experience those people were massively helpful they they knew the environment and like 
people were throwing up, you know, like it, it was just like people were getting sick. <laughs> we were like, let's land, let, let them clean the plane and let's do it again. And we did that every day. It was incredibly hard, but I I still watch it today and I'm like, that's awesome. Cause I know there's, there's some digital effects. I mean, the nature of the, the plane doing what it does, we had to remove the part of the parabola that the plane does its maneuver where every everything stops moving and has double gravity like you're the, the double your weight for about four or five minutes and then you the the plane does the going over the top of the problem that's where all the, the fun weightlessness action happens so it was it was grueling it was really hard i mean damien passed out trying to do one take so you do more than one parabola per flight yeah you do 15 parabolas per flight wow wait is that right yeah 15 parabolas and the whole length of the video was was eight parabolas per video per take of the song so we would do one through seven right and then do one through eight right is that 15 yeah so we wouldn't do the paint scene which is the very last weightlessness bout uh until the until the plane was ready to land so we'd land the plane they would clean the plane and then we would try it all over again wow. like later in the afternoon it was nuts dude it was so nuts yeah i mean i definitely anytime you guys put out a video i have to watch it like five times and there's like the the first five times i'm just doing how'd they do that how what did they how was that a drone how did that camera get in there like the Rube Goldberg, I probably watched it 10 times. Just be No, there's a handoff in here somewhere. That camera didn't move down that that elevator so smoothly. And like... There are p- points in some of the videos where we just had to... We had to make little hidden things to, to make it really smooth. But the goal the whole time was to get it in one go. Or at least that look. I think that look is so important. Like how Birdman, that movie feels where it's like there is no edit and you are you can't even try to figure out where it's put because it's there's something so satisfying about that. Like it's almost like analog filmmaking where you're not really editing. You're just choreographing everything. But God, yeah, that and you guys love to get paint on yourselves. Is that do you do you, do you each have your own go to color or is that random per video? No, uh, I we it's random per video, and I, for some reason I'm always getting it. As and every one I definitely get blasted with paint. Yeah, there was a there was one video called "Writings on the Wall," and um, that took about six days to pull off too. And they pour pink paint right on the side of my head, so for the following like three weeks, I had pink like house paint in my oh. ear for for weeks oh, yeah. awful, awful so let's go back to the beginning of okay go you guys are very much a chicago band in it's from its inception um i'd love to just hear your thoughts on the supportiveness of the chicago community as you guys were coming up and how chicago itself played a role in your band's uh upbringing well i'm I'm really the, the I'm the only guy in the band that is a Chicago native. Um, so I have all sorts of built in love and, and um, loyalty to the city. Um, the the other guys were, you know, planted there 
because we all knew like, you know, Seattle had happened and Chicago had a lot of really great venues and there was a lot of diversity in the Chicago scene. There was a lot of like, there was like disturbed, right? So they were like the South side uh, active rock thing. We had Q101 that did rock and stuff like that. And, but then there was also this like post post jazz, post rock kind of thing that was happening. There was Wilco. It was just like a really wide variety of stuff. And we felt like, we were going to come at the scene with more of like a cars cheap trick, you know, this user-friendly kind of vibe that seemed like wasn't really happening in town. You know, people, when they realized that, you know, when they've come to see, okay, go is like, it wasn't about being like a stub. It was like, have a bunch of drinks and listen to super buoyant, uh, fun rock and roll. Um, people got, pretty into it and and pretty supportive i mean that there was a lot of people that thought we were like cheese balls but at the same time you know like you, the okay go show was was really energetic really fun and you know we would play i think we started a show with a cover and we ended with a cover it was just like we wanted to just make people psyched about their night and tim's you know natural theatrical kind of thing was really worked well and you know, we just had a lot of love, you know, it was a lot of support for the band. And, you know, I think when, when we got signed and we did all that stuff in LA, so we sort of knew that we were going to have to end up here uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but um, it wasn't really until after the first two or three years of constant touring, did we all decide that it was like, okay, we can, we can leave Chicago and let's, let's be near the label and where, um, all the the music, typical music industry was. So I I know because I was living in Chicago about the time you guys got signed, and then for the few years after that. Um, and I know I definitely remember you having a a lot of collaboration with the Chicago NPR station WBEZ. Um, I feel like This American Life had some references. I know you guys did maybe the theme song for one or two of the shows. Um. How did that happen? And what was that like? Is that was that would that have happened if you weren't in Chicago? Uh, I think the relationship with NPR started uh, through Damien, our singer. I think he he had a job. What was it? It was an intern job or it was like a studio gig where he was like helping with recording stuff at the studios. Uh, but he. Um, became really good friends with Ira Glass. We would hang out with Ira and um, we loved his show, uh, This American Life. And he he liked the band. I remember he came in to a, a recording session. I think it was one of the recording sessions that had the song that got us signed, which was our, our, like the local hit was called Get Over It. And he was there while we were tracking it or for that session. He asked us if we'd be willing to be the live band for his like theatrical version of of a show and uh and so we did that we played in um washington dc with him and in new york i think we did a show in chicago uh we did one in la and so that relationship was was big that was a big thing for us we that was before uh the treadmills or or, or any of that stuff but those were the right type of people and that was the right type of of geeky cool that we wanted to be a part of. 
And so the, that relationship was was big time for us in the beginning. They were very important. That was kind of the beginning of Geeky Cool. Ira Glass is kind of the class president of the Geeky Cool Club. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was it. It just it was a really it was a good fit. We felt comfortable in our own like the band felt comfortable in its own skin with that kind of crew. That was that felt good to us. Yeah, I think I remember. I think I saw one of those This American Life live events at UCLA, and I think you guys were the house band for it. Um, and that was right about when KCRW was in its absolute heyday, and like, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But it was, and I remember just having you guys having like good banter with Ira. Yeah. And did that evolve over the course of the tour, or is that something that was always there from the beginning? Well, you know, it. I think the friendship was well before that tour happened and and like that that comfort zone was was already kind of there and you know he was really collaborative and and you know he encouraged us to do we have another dance routine uh for a song called a million ways it was actually it was before youtube but it was one of the first viral homemade dance routines that we'd we'd ever done he was like you know what better way to end his show is have us do a choreographed dance to one of our songs and it just went over really well the crowd totally got it it was silly enough but geeky and brainy enough that it really it it resonated with his audience and it was a good fit yeah so now that like tiktok is the social media sort of darling of the moment um and they're notorious for dance videos and like solo dance videos has okay go made any entrees into the tiktok world yet no I don't think we've, you know, with the pandemic that kicked on and everything slowed down and also members in the band have all become dads recently. I think Damien had twins like three or four years ago. Andy had another baby three years ago. Uh, We haven't really done very much um, stuff together. We just, we had the first show. It was like three weeks ago. We played the first show in three years uh in uh, niagara falls that was the first show we play we've done a couple of things we did a music video together uh remotely during the pandemic uh but we really just kind of like downshifted and everybody got into other things uh damien's making a movie like a proper um you know well-funded movie for apple that's um he's in he's editing that now and um we did music for uh, another uh, kids program on the Apple Plus network. Just the music. We we guest guest starred in a couple of episodes, but we just really haven't done too much. I I don't know if TikTok is. I'm sure we could figure it out on how to do it, but like we haven't invested much time into that um, into that kind of realm of. Isn't isn't TikTok supposed to be really short videos? It has been. It started out as one minute, but now I think they've opened it up to 10. But like there's so much like of so many of the kids on it go on there to copy the choreography of other kids, essentially. And I know you guys have a long lot of experience in the choreography space. Yeah. Um, No, we haven't we haven't invested into that yet. I. I would have to check with Cohen on it because I know he 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 appreciate he watches TikTok stuff and 
Evelyn, my my stepdaughter, loves it too. But I don't know much about it, to be honest. I would give it, I tell people, just give it three hours. Give it three hours to learn what you like and be honest with it about what you like. And you're going to start getting served things that you never thought even existed, but it's going to be right in the lane of what you like. So whether you're into like woodworking or vegan cooking or, you know, music, there is some of the most inspiring content out there. And it really does a good job of elevating from below instead of trying to find like the top first. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's impressive. And, it, you know, it started out as a music platform to begin with. And then they they evolved. Um, I had another question that I wanted to wrap it up with. If I oh, uh, tell us about what you're doing now. Wait, so the pandemic happened; it slowed all ma- all ma- music and touring down. Um, what was the sort of growth that came out of that for you? Yeah, uh, well, I would say let me try to make this concise. Um, around 2000. 10 when cohen was conceived i was like oh my gosh i need to need to diversify a little bit and get out from just being the drummer in the band and so i went to a production school and i learned how to to make basically edm beats and things like that at a local school not far from here called icon collective and you know at the time um a lot of kids were like into the cutting edge dubstep and things like that and i knew that i just getting involved with that was going to give me a little bit more of a shot of writing for okay go um and when i would say about i don't know maybe about seven or eight years ago i ended up doing remixes for people that other other guys in bands and other projects and stuff. And I really started loving that part of music production, you know, so the more that, you know, like still creative, but mostly editorial, like you take somebody's good song and make a different song from it. And, um, and uh, you know, mixing people's music, not doing creatives, just mixing stuff and making it sound better um, was something I really enjoyed. And then, uh, before the pandemic hit, we found out Damien was going to have babies. And we knew even before everything got shut down that we were going to take a pretty decent slowdown. Um, I met somebody that was doing a lot of work through a website called Sound Better. And that's a place where if you're uh, a mixing engineer or a musician or anything, you can you can get into their database and become a provider of that craft to the public they had a a larger reach and um i just started doing a lot of mixing for anybody that it would let me mix their song for and i do it on the on the cheap and just try to get good at it and then the pandemic hit and then i really had to like dig in and make it a source of income like i did this was my new job and so i've been doing that full time for the last four years, like mixing, producing, session drumming, and mastering for anybody that'll have me do it. And um, I think because of the pandemic and how everybody was stuck at home, I got really busy. And so I'm a full-time mixing engineer now. And it's, it's great. I really love it. I do all the work here at home. And I have a couple of friends that 
um, that I reach out to that work remotely, the guitar player, keyboard players, other producers that, I, that I'll sort of like hire to do larger projects, like full records. I'll play drums, Gene will play guitar, Nate will play keys, and, and we'll make an album for somebody that, you know, just recorded a demo on their iPhone. And so that's, that's what I do uh, most of the time. And it's, it's great. It's, I work with people all over the world and it's fun. And I, I can't believe that, that I was able to continue being a music professional, even when the band calmed down so far that there was no income at all or any projects, you know, it was basically a ghost town for OK Go for a good year and a half. So yeah, that's what I do. And, and uh, it's, it's fantastic. I love it. And so when can, where can people find you on sound better and, and hire you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. If you had a song or, you know, it, it, any level production it's at, I can help make it into something that you'd feel proud of and you'd be excited to release on, on, you know, on streaming services or whatever. And yeah, when I first started, I'd work with anybody, anybody who want to do anything, I'd be down. Like you want to do Enya, Lil Wayne, like, let's do it. Let's make it go and make something happen. And uh, now I'm a little bit more picky because I can't spend time working with people that don't, you know, know what they want to do. But yeah, I, uh, I love working with unsigned artists. I think those people have some of the better ideas uh, and, you know, people that are hungry and they want to put out something that sounds cool. And maybe that's kind of Joe Newton of me. I don't know. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. You're recruiting the little guys and working with them, turning them to big stars. Should have tried. Sounds about right. I haven't had a mega hit yet, but you know, there's some some people I've worked with that have got hundred thousand followers on Spotify, things like that. Like oh my gosh, it's been, that song's been listened to a million times. Like, wow, that's so great, you know. But really I just love the process of of mixing and producing. Cool. So I want to just go back to Elmhurst real quick. Cause I know like, I, I feel like we went to the same schools since elementary school. I know I always, when I was walk home from school, I would always walk by your house. Your house was like halfway the distance. So I'd know I'm like almost home. It was like an eight minute walk, but yours was at about the four minute mark. And so what do you think, what is it about Elmhurst, Illinois that created York high school's cross country program and an unbelievable amount of success where Joe Newton won the state title over half of his career. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know. I, I do. I do want to sort of recognize that we were in a safe city and we could do that walk. I can't let Cohen and Evelyn walk to Seven Eleven unless they're with each other and they've got their gizmos on. Like, it's it was just safe and we could be outside and go for walks and that that sense of freedom and that sense of safety i think was really great for everybody i think it was really healthy um and um you know york was a fantastic school to go to uh and i guess it's just just really a lucky thing that we had such an incredible coach to be a part of it I don't know. I, I just know it doesn't, I don't think that happens in every Midwestern town. I just don't think it exists like that. I mean, there's a lot of safe, fun places to live, but boy, oh boy, you know, what were we 14 miles out of city of Chicago? 
and an amazing world-class city and a safe zone where people could be free outdoors and, you know, an environment that was really healthy for, for everybody. Um, it was just a, maybe, maybe Joe's scene was just a cherry on top. I don't know. And I think like the, that being said, it was really safe, but don't you have like a pretty good recollection of being at Edison school and periodically getting like half sheets of paper that said like beware of a man in a white beware of a man driving a white van kind of thing <laughs> i don't remember that but i did i actually i was i was in elmhurst for kindergarten and then i left i came back for sixth grade so mm. i started at sandberg and that was like i was back in town and so the friends that i made in kindergarten i got to reconnect with but no i don't remember the the be be weary of the man well, cause, cause Cotillier lived like on the, you lived on one side of my walk and Cotillier was a little further down the road, but it was sort of the same street. If you wind around, I, I swear, I remember there being an incident that was like on that street that was in the, in between your two streets. It was like a man in a car exposing himself or in a blue van. And they would hand, they would hand, send us home with these half sheets of paper that were just like letting you know there's a, there's a kidnapper going around. And we still walked home from school. It wasn't like that didn't affect anyone. Everyone was just like, okay, well, yeah, just don't look at the white vans. If it's a green van, you know, maybe just see if he knows your mother. But if not, just don't take anything from strangers. And don't don't get so lost next time when you're walking home. That was it. Like that grit. But that being said, you say that safety mattered. Safety was helpful. We also had the prairie path, which in my research, I realized that used to be a railroad. And so that was a railroad because Chicago at one point was like the railroad center of the continent. And um, a lot of those railroads got taken out. I mean, even in Elmhurst, we had like three railroads that we would that you could be you'd, you'd have to wait for tracks and all kinds of stuff. Um, but those the, the transportation center of that. But but if it's a town that's safe to walk in, it's a town that's safe to run in. And so I think that maybe, and also, I mean, I've tried to figure out what was in the water, what was, but I think it really was just a cult of personality and he was able to draw people in and whether he was drawing you in to get his dry cleaning or his white castles or to go, you know, run a thousand miles for him. He was, he had that charm and he, he found a little way to get into everyone. Right. Whether you were the art kid or the runner kid or the skinny kid or the band kid, he knew you mattered. And I think that even those of us who weren't on the team, we were able to really get a lot out of his, out of life, out of his life. Yeah. Which is really inspiring and powerful. Totally. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate uh, you telling us your story. And I love that. I love your White Castle story of Newton. It's incredible that everybody has a story and no matter what, what lane you were coming at him from, he would he found a way to to make you feel special and give you something to to remember him by. And I think that was a huge part of his charm. So I'm gonna put the links to a lot of these things down below. Um okay go is the band, Dan Kanopka is the artist and the mixer, and soundbetter.com will put the link to that in there as well. It's really been amazing sitting down and catching up. Hopefully, uh, we'll have a chance to do this again in person now that the pandemic has been ended. Maybe for one of them Bears games or something. Um, but thank you again, everyone. This is Matty Arnold, host of 
the Long Green Line podcast, and we'll see you next time.